We learn about a man who made himself into a legend selling vegetable peelers. And we hear from America's Test Kitchen about all the secret second uses of tools you already have. That's this week on The Splendid Table from APM. Sunday at noon on Radio Catskill. Support for WJFF comes from Two Queens, offering coffee, tea, and bees. Located in Pete's Plaza, Narrowsburg, New York. TwoQueensCoffee.com. And from listener donations at WJFFRadio.org. Support for Radio Catskill comes from the Calicoon Theater, an updated vintage movie theater with new releases, film festivals, nostalgic screenings, live music events, and more. Information and schedule at thecalicoontheater.com. It's the last Saturday of the month, and that means Donna Fellenberg is on break, and it's time for... Travels with Travels with Travels with Trees. Who's he gonna talk to now? What's he gonna talk about? Where are we gonna go? Travels with Trees. I am so excited today. Our guest is Rachel Dart, and she is a New York-based director and educator. She has facilitated workshops on sexuality and intimate partner violence for the Mayor's Office to End Gender-Based Violence and another group called Sex Discussed Here. Rachel is also the founder of Let Us Work, an advocacy group that combats sexual harassment in theater. Rachel, welcome to Travels with Triggs. Thanks so much for having me. I always think of you, we've been friends for a long time. I always think of you as a social justice advocate. When we're talking about social justice, what is the foundation of your definition of that term? Because I think it's something that gets thrown around a lot, but people think they understand, but it might not be a complete understanding. What a good question. I mean, I guess for me, it has to do with... um, just sort of improving your corner of the world, wherever it is. My corner of the world is in theater. Um, You know, I think when we talk about social justice, sort of quote unquote, um, it sounds very daunting. um, And it sounds like just an absolutely enormous task to take on, but actually it can be really simple and everybody is totally capable of, of taking just just sort of a small handful of steps um, to, yeah, like I said, improving their corner of the world if they want to. So that's really what it's about for me, I guess. So like, for example, when I worked for the mayor's office, I was, there were a bunch, I was a peer educator and a senior trainer. Um, And so what that meant was that I spent a lot of time facilitating workshops on healthy and unhealthy relationships for young people between the ages of 11 and 24. And then I would train adults for how to deal with young people between the ages of 11 and 24, specifically around issues of healthy and unhealthy relationships. And most of my coworkers were people of color. Um, a lot of the situations where I taught, I was the only white person. And so I just learned very quickly to try to sort of listen as much as I talked. And sometimes that was uncomfortable and sometimes it was embarrassing and very humbling. But yeah, if you don't want to be humbled... <laughs> then it's hard to work in a social justice context, I think, sort of in any way at all. Well, it's interesting, too, because I, th- I think it's it's been my experience that when people are uncomfortable, they feel as though they're being told they are wrong, as opposed to thinking that perhaps the world is evolving or thinking is changing or you're being handed an opportunity to grow. Not so much that where you were 
is not understandable, but that there's new ground to be covered. Yeah, for sure. And I, and I also think too, that like being, um, I don't want to say called out because I feel like that has such an, a sort of aggressive connotation, but having, especially someone who's your friend or your colleague, uh, point, point out to you that the thing that you said or did was, um, harmful and or hurtful in some way is actually a huge vote of confidence from that person because if they didn't think that you might be interested in changing or being better they would just write you off or being capable of it right exactly uh so having someone say to you you know that the here's why the thing that you said is not informed hurtful whatever yeah i i try to frame that for people as and i try to frame it for myself when it happens to me because it happens to all of us we all make mistakes I try to frame it as a really sort of generous gift from that person because A, like I said, it assumes that, right, you're capable of changing and that you're willing to change. But B, it costs the person something to say that to you, right? It takes their time. It takes their energy. It takes their vulnerability on both sides. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, of course, it's everybody's first impulse to get defensive. Um, But if we can kind of reframe it, like I said, as being an act of generosity from the other person, I think that helps us – sort of shift our shift our perspective well now it's interesting we're talking about this from the point of view of the person receiving the feedback how do you suggest the person giving the feedback frame that in a way that it's easier to hear or feels less you're wrong it's such a good question. I, you know, there's a part of me that feels like there's sort of no way to do it that isn't going to make the other person feel defensive. And I have, I have seen situations where I've seen people call each other out in a way that put the person on the receiving end on the defensive, but then they were able to move forward. Like I worked with an amazing um, actor a few years ago, a black actor who called out a white actor on saying something racist and he said, what you just said was racist. And the white actor got very upset. And the black actor said, look, that's the beginning of our conversation. It's not the end, right? I'm, now we're going to talk about it together. And again, such a generous moment. It was really very moving to, to watch. Um, and so that um, began in a way that I know made the white actor feel very sort of confronted, but ended in a place of understanding. So, but I guess... I struggle with this, honestly, as a person who gives this kind of feedback, because I do feel resentful sometimes of having to do it. And I do feel sometimes like for, you know, for women, especially the only way that we can get men to understand what it's like to be a woman is to sort of like rehash all of the terrible things that have happened to us in the hopes that men will learn something from that. But anyway, to answer your question, One thing that I have found that works really well is to make the conversation about feelings instead of facts. Um, And I actually learned this technique from an organization called Showing Up for Racial Justice, because right after Trump was elected, uh, they put out this guide that was like how to talk to your family at Thanksgiving to make it about the way that you feel personally about what's going on, if it comes up, rather than trying to make it kind of an abstract debate. Um, and then it actually ended up being relevant and I, I saw it work really well. Um, and so that's what I'll often say is like, I can't speak to, for example, the veracity of every single woman's sexual harassment claim. What I can do is I can tell you about things that have happened to me and 
how it was received by people when I tried to talk to them about it. I know my experience happened because I was there and it happened to me. And so it kind of, it takes things out of the realm of the abstract and more into the realm of the personal. And then it's, it's hard for somebody to argue with your feelings and your set of experiences. And it also makes it less accusatory, right? It's not like the thing you said is wrong, but like, okay, here's what happened to me. And here's my perspective on it. If that makes sense. Oh, it makes total sense. Um, what is one of the motivators? What made you move toward this kind of work? What a good question. I guess, well, when I was in high school, um, my best friend was uh, a sexuality educator and she went through a training with an organization that I don't know if it exists anymore um, called the Monterey County AIDS Project. And she got to do all these cool things like hand out condoms on the street to people. And they had like a needle exchange program. I just thought it was the coolest thing. And I was not allowed to do that (laughs) when I was in high school. Um, But I learned a ton from her because she had all this information. And whenever I had a question, I could go to her and she knew all the answers. And so I think for me, having somebody that I could go to who was my peer that was hugely valuable to me. So I wanted to provide that service to other people's when I got to college and not have that kind of like awkwardness or imbalance of having it be an adult or an authority figure or whatever. So that was a big part of what moved me in that direction. Well, and so as a facilitator or a leader within a community, let's say you're part of a group of 30 people and it has one leader. Then there are 29 peers or participants, and all of them are contributing to the communication, the spirit, the feeling of the larger group. And so what do you think are some steps that people who may not be moving toward leadership can offer to keep the communication open and constructive when there are so many potential roadblocks. Do you mean, what do you mean? Like sort of within their own communities? How do we all participate in it being a safe place to have those kinds of constructive back and forth discussions that might lead to more functional models for everyone within the group? Yeah. I mean, a lot of it for me is about, um, it's going to sound really basic, but a lot of it is about active listening and mirroring people's experiences back to them. Um, and also I think creating a culture where we tolerate and appreciate the good faith mistake, you know, like when I first started doing my work on sexual harassment, I talked to a lot of folks, both in leadership and not who were really stressed out and really worried because they felt like the sort of end game of the culture change was an environment where everyone's expected to say something when it's actually quite the opposite. So that everybody understands the inevitability of the good faith error and is willing to, and that hopefully you have what uh, a colleague of mine called the oops ouch environment where we all feel comfortable saying to each other, you know, that's actually hurtful or I hate to say problematic because I feel like it's such a buzzword, but I will. Um, and here's, I'm going to tell you why. And then for the person on the receiving end of that to say, thank you for letting me know and to not do it again, you know? So when we can, when we can have a little patience with each other and 
yeah, I acknowledge that nobody is perfect, but also then it requires a level of self-knowledge and security to, to be able to say to somebody, the thing you said makes me uncomfortable and I'm going to tell you why. And it also takes self-knowledge and security for the person on the receiving end to take that information in. So I think that's a big part of it is like the active listening, um, the validating of other people's experiences and giving everybody again, a little make a mistake and to learn and to do better. And if they don't learn and then and do better, then you have a different set of circumstances on your hands. But, um, but yeah. So I think what happens sometimes is people are so quick to react and speak that they don't fully take in what's being said because they've wanted to say something since the beginning of the discussion. So they've missed everything else that's happened. And I think we all, as you said, need to commit to actively listening, to remembering that there's a physical part to it where once we understand what has fully been said and not just the beginning or the emotion that it brought up, we're going to get further. Right. The other question I wanted to ask you is you used the term mirroring, and I think that might be unfamiliar to some people. Could you go a little deeper with that uh, concept? Yeah, I just mean that... um... When we talk about active listening, one of the things, it's funny, it's going to sound really sort of infantilizing because I learned this technique when I worked at a preschool, <laughs> but it works really well. Um, that when a little kid, for example, is really upset, it doesn't do any good to say to them not to be upset because it doesn't change anything, right? But it can be so valuable for people of all ages to say, I see that you're really upset. And it's it's that simple just to make people feel just to, to help people feel and see that you are in the moment with them, you know, and it can sort of, it can be very disarming to be like, yeah, sometimes it's really hard to feel the way that you feel. And people want to know that their feelings matter to the person with whom they're speaking. Exactly. Exactly. And speaking of active listening, I hope you have been active listening and that you will be sorry that we need to take this quick break (laughs) on Travels with Triggs on WJFF. Travels with Triggs. I'm your host, Kusar Grace KG, right here in the place to be. The Music Emporium, Tuesday, 7 to 9. 90.5 FM Community Supported Radio Serving the Catskills Northeast Pennsylvania And Upper Delaware Valley All those other towns, villages and hamlets Who pick up our broadcast Big shout out to you Travels with Triggs And we're back. For those of you just tuning in, we are talking to my friend Rachel Dart, who is a social justice educator and advocate. Um, Rachel, so we're talking about this on a community basis, and I'd like to talk about it on a personal basis because you're you're married to a good friend of mine um, for quite a while. How do how do you guys feel these things affect your marriage and how have you built a marriage or other personal relationships built on the foundation of your passion for this subject? That's a great question. Um, I think for both of us, this is something that um, we, I think this is something we really have in common um, is feeling like we want to, uh, like I said before, sort of improve 
our corner of the world. And I think especially over the last four years, as Eric has gotten involved with um, work in politics and I've gotten involved with volunteer work in politics, we've both found it. We've, it's been very, uh, it's been very bonding, I think, for us. Um, and it's also been fun to rope our family members and friends <laughs> into um, the kind of uh, work that we that we do. Um, but, you know, it's funny that you say that because the reality of being in a relationship is often totally different from the things that uh, we talk about. You know, I had a lot of coworkers when I worked at the mayor's office who, you know, we would talk about like, like jealousy is totally healthy and normal, not healthy, but normal. And, you know, uh, a healthy relationship is based on trust, respect, and equality. And so, and I had one co- coworker who would often say, you know, like with my mayor's office hat on, this is what I'm going to tell you, but without it on, here's what reality looks like. Um, so, so yeah, it can be challenging to kind of apply those principles on a day-to-day basis um, to real life. But you know, I feel about, very lucky. Yeah. If I'm not interrupting, is no, that some of what we're talking about will always be, correct me if, I'm, if you think I'm wrong, aspirational because perfection is probably an illusion. Right. So the thought that you can just get there and it's done is unlikely. Yes, I totally agree. And I think that was one of the things we used to talk about the mayor's office a lot too, is the idea that a healthy relationship requires effort. But if you're, the balance isn't enjoyable, then it might not be such a healthy relationship after all. Or if one of the people is putting in all the effort and the other one isn't. But yeah, absolutely that nobody's perfect and that like you're going to have conflict and issues and what have you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and then to add theater to that minefield that is your life, uh, to bring all of these <laughs> to that as well. I'm just going to read a little bit of your bio for the audience. Some of Rachel's oh, recent directing in, uh, credits include the regional premiere of Dance Nation for Nashville Story Garden and Ivanka play for Theater 503 as part of the Edinburgh Fringe. And she's also working on Coming Soon, a new rock musical by Bay Area songwriter Rachel Lark. She has worked for the Actors Theater of Louisville, the Ensemble Theater, uh, Youngblood, EST Sloan, Culture Project, and Hashtag Serials at the Flea. And we've worked together in a number of improv companies. So as an artist, Rachel, how do, do the things we've been talking about affect your approach? For me, a lot of it is about um, understanding how to create a work environment in the rehearsal room where people feel like they can make their best work. So I think because it's so challenging to make a living in the theater world, I think a lot of folks, we forget the power and privilege that we do have. For example, if you are a director, you have a ton of authority in your rehearsal room in your casting process, in your design meetings, et cetera. And so what do we do to make those places comfortable and collaborative? And so again, this is sort of what we were talking about before of like, everyone is capable of improving their little piece of their industry, right? It doesn't have to be that you are like out on the picket line. You can choose to make choices in your 
just in your own little teeny tiny workspace um, that make it safer and more comfortable for folks. So I always encourage people to think about what power they do have um, in their work environment and how they can use it to let people know that it's going to be a place where they're going to feel free to do their best work. And speaking of work, what is one of the many projects you've worked on that you feel either represented your point of view especially well or expanded your point of view through the process of rehearsals and seeing it in front of an audience and the way it reverberates in the world? I think to the latter half of that question, every time I work in a new city, I find that the work culture um, in theater is really different. The work culture in Nashville is totally different from in Philly, which is totally different from in the Bay Area. Um, and the audiences are really different as well. So I, I'm i very accustomed to the way that New York audiences respond to things at this point, as are you. Um, but I think this is something we also found doing improv together was that, you know, every every place that we traveled to had such a varied response from the audience. Um, so, and then to the to the first half of your question, when I directed this production of Dance Nation, which is an amazing play by Claire Barron, um, that was, I think, a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize a couple of years ago. It's about uh, an, an all, almost all girls dance team and they're all teenagers, but she specifies that they're supposed to be, they're not supposed to be played by teenagers or by women who are in their early twenties who are supposed to look like teenagers because there's no point. They're not teenagers. So they're meant to be played by women of all ages and races. And it's just very moving because you sort of see both of them at the same time. Like you see the teenage, the teenager that they were and the adult they are. And the play is so funny and so dirty and so frank about like women's sexuality and young women's sexuality. And it's about like girls being ambitious, which I love. Um, and we just had the best time doing it. And but I didn't, I didn't know, I saw it when they did the original production here in New York. And so I didn't really think about how would the Nashville audience respond to it. And they were so vocal. Um, and so a lot of the language in the play is a little bit shocking. Um, and, and they were just really vocal about how shocked they were. But they would also, because they're not like jaded and cranky like New York audiences, they would whoop, they would cheer, they would respond. Um, so it was really interesting to see, to sort of watch them take the journey of from like shock to enjoyment <laughs> over the course of the play. And yeah, I felt really good that we did such a sort of unapologetically feminist play. Um, and Nashville is a very liberal place, but, but yeah, it was cool. It, it sat with that audience in a totally different way than here. Audiences cannot argue with truth. They may have different interpretations of it or different reactions to it. But if something has a foundation in truth, it deserves to exist. Yeah. Now, so we've talked about, we've talked about social justice as an educator, someone who sets the table, how it's affected your personal and your artistic life. What are some of the first steps towards building that empathy or openness that you recommend people follow? Um, someone say who might just be inspired to open up their thinking about the things we've talked about today. 
One thing that I absolutely cannot recommend enough is that if you're on social media to follow people who don't look like you, um, because I have learned so much from following writers and activists who are trans and non-binary. Um, I have just learned a ton and it's free. That's, which is amazing. Um, and also to engage with stories and media made by and about people who don't look like you. What are a couple of titles, be them books, TV shows, films? What are a couple of titles you would recommend people think about using for the goal you just outlined? What a great question. Um, I recently read a book um, called Luster by an author named Raven Leilani, who is a Black woman. And it is about a young Black woman in her early 20s um, who works in publishing. And it's so sharp about and accurate about what it's like to be a woman in your early 20s um, in New York. And it's also extremely funny, which I absolutely loved. And it's sort of a quick, a quick read. Um, I also recently read a book called Real Life by a Black author named Brandon Taylor, um, which is about a young man who comes from a really um, uh, low-income background in the South and goes to what it's like for him to go to grad school uh, as a, a biology student in the Midwest. And I felt like I learned a lot about what that experience must be like. Um, so those are two that that come immediately to mind for me. Um, I always rec- recommend Michelle Obama's book to people. Um, Becoming, it's so good. And if you listen to the audiobook, you get to listen to her read it to you, which is just glorious. Um, so yeah, those are those are three that come to mind. There's also an amazing book by Roxane Gay called Bad Feminist, um, which I love for many reasons, um, not least because she talks about how nobody the sort of vulnerability of admitting that like, even if you're a true like died in the wool feminist, you might still have like guilty pleasures that you know aren't feminist and you might struggle with sort of walking your feminist path every day. Um, so yeah, those are, those are some good ones. I think. Well, awesome. We've given people a place to start if they're looking for it. Yeah. And Rachel, I just, I want to thank you number one for being a guest on the show today. And number two, and uh, many times over, you've been such a positive friend in terms of opening up my mind and helping me commit to making better choices. That's um, so nice. Thank you. I think you're a very inspiring friend. And Likewise. I'm thankful that uh, I get to talk to you. And now the audience does. Thank you for tuning in to Travels with Triggs. Is there anything else you'd like to wrap up uh, by saying, Rachel? No, I don't think so. All right. Well, then I guess we've covered it. Donna Fellenberg will be back next week with Catskill Character (laughs) at 1130 on Saturdays on WJFF. Thanks for joining. Travels with Travels with Travels with Triggs. Who's he gonna talk to now? What's he gonna talk about? Where we gonna go? Travels with Triggs. Support for Radio Catskill comes from the Calicoon Theater, an updated vintage movie theater with new releases, film festivals, nostalgic screenings, live music events, and more. Information and schedule at thecalicoontheater.com. Support for WJFF comes from Two Queens, offering coffee, tea, and bees. Located in Pete's Plaza, Narrowsburg, New York. TwoQueensCoffee.com.
and from listener donations at wjffradio.org. On this week's On the Media, the language of mental health. Are you burnt out? Breaking down? Perhaps you're languishing. It's almost like looking at life through grayscale instead of in vivid color. And I don't really notice as the colors get a little bit fainter. How to describe a pandemic state of mind. Don't miss this week's On the Media from WNYC. Saturday afternoon at 4 on Radio Catskill. WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. Support comes from the Homestead School, Montessori Education, preschool through early college with campuses in Glens Bay and Hurleyville. Building the intelligence, creativity, connection, and skills for an ecological future since 1978. Homesteadschool.com. From the River Reporter newspaper in Narrowsburg, New York. Riverreporter.com. And from listener donations at WJFFradio.org. Support for Radio Catskill comes from the Neversink General Store, featuring an award-winning chef, smoked barbecue year-round, local products and catering, now offering takeout, neversinkgeneralstore.com. And from listeners like you. On the next Janice Adams Show, we're taking a path through history to Waterloo, New York, birthplace of Memorial Day and the 19th century sanctuary city... If you're going to be a truly patriotic American, you've got to be believing and promoting human rights for everyone. We're a nation that was born of revolution. You've got to be activists in promoting causes. We saw that manifested in Waterloo in terms of patriotic remembrance of the sacrifice of Waterloo residents in the Civil War. And so we have Decoration Day, which becomes Memorial Day, evolving out of that. And I think that's still a lesson for us yet today. So much to see, so much to discover. I love New York.